behalf of the church family, let me add my word of welcome to all those who are visiting us with us this morning. Praise God. Praise God. We feel the Lord has raised this church up to be in this community, to serve this community, to be a part of this community, made up of this community for the glory of God. And so uh, if the Lord puts on your heart to join us in that mission of telling our neighbors about Jesus' love and serving the community, uh, we, would, we would very much like for you to consider becoming a part of the church family. Let me tell you something else about us. Uh, we're brutally casual, right? Uh, it's okay if you want to rock a church hat, that's cool, or, or snapback, you know. It's okay if you want to wear floor shines or timberlands. Uh, either way, you are welcome here. Uh, we are fond of saying we don't take ourselves seriously, but we do take the gospel of Jesus Christ seriously. Uh, so if you're looking for a church family that intends to be a family and intends to take seriously the things of God uh, and to walk them out in joy, uh, we hope you'll continue to come and visit with us uh, and consider being a part of our family. Well, you have arrived this morning. Uh, we are about a third of the way through uh, a sermon series in Luke's Gospel. If you're visiting this morning and you don't have a Bible uh, or you'd like to use the Bible this morning, just raise your hand. These good-looking gentlemen in the aisles are, are passing out Bibles uh, for folks to use. If you don't have a Bible at home, uh, we invite you to take one of these as our gift to you. We would like nothing more than to see the Word of God in every house uh, in our neighborhood. And so if you don't have a Bible, uh, that just became a gift. We want you to have that. Take that with you. Don't, don't feel funny walking out the door with it. You ain't got to hide it. It's yours. Um, and so take it and enjoy it, okay? Uh, if you have a Bible at home, or if you, like me, you have four, five, six Bibles, uh, bring one <laughs> to the service. This is the most important thing we do, is give attention to God's Word, okay? So this morning we're in Luke chapter 9. If you have your Bibles, uh, then turn with me there. If you're new to the Bible, uh, Luke is the name of a, a book of the Bible, a gospel. A gospel is really a story, a, a recounting of Jesus' earthly life, of his teaching while he was here, and what he has done for our salvation. Uh, it's one of four such gospels, um, and it's, it's one that we have been studying over these last couple of months in a series that we've called Getting to Know Jesus. And that's precisely what we want to do. Whether you've never heard of Jesus or whether you have known Jesus for some time, there's still more depth to him. There's still more opportunity to get to know him. Uh, and if you're just joining us for this series, let me give you just a word of review. In chapters 1 and 2, we looked at the miraculous events surrounding Jesus' birth. So if you want to know what was happening at the time that Jesus was born, uh, that's chapters 1 and 2. Chapters 3 and 4 began Jesus' public ministry. And so you want to see what it was like when Jesus, at about age 30, um, sort of stepped onto the scene and began his ministry of teaching God's Word, of healing the sick and, and raising the dead and doing all kinds of miracles. That picks up around chapters 3 and 4. And then we sort of, in chapters 5, 6, 7, and 8, we begin to see his teaching, what he believed and what he taught, uh, and how he instructed people. And it's kind of in that section now that we come in chapter 9. We'll see in chapter 9 some of his teaching, and we'll see in chapter 9 some of his miracles. Now here's the thing. Running through Luke chapter 9 from verses 1 to 45 are two things. One's a question. Who is Jesus? Who is Jesus? That's what's hanging over this entire chapter. 
And the other thing that you see running through this chapter are then the various answers to that question. That's not always been an easy question. It may not be an easy question for you this morning if you come and you're new to the Bible and you're new to Christianity. Who is Jesus? Well, we pray that when we leave this morning, we will have that, that question answered clearly and that we will sort of see something, that we would leave with this understanding that the way to get our deepest needs met in this world is to follow Jesus into the next world. The way to get our deepest needs met in this world is actually to follow Jesus into the next world. I'm going to read Luke chapter 9, verses 1 to 45. If you have your Bibles, please follow along with me. And he called the twelve together and gave them power and authority over all demons and to cure diseases. And he sent them out to proclaim the kingdom of God and to heal. And he said to them, take nothing for your journey, no staff, nor bag, nor bread, nor money, and do not have two tunics or coats. And whatever house you enter, stay there and from there depart. And wherever they do not receive you, when you leave that town, shake off the dust from your feet as a testimony against it. And they departed and went through the villages, preaching the gospel and healing everywhere. Now Herod the Tetrarch heard about all that was happening, and he was perplexed, because it was said by some that John had been raised from the dead, by some that Elijah had appeared, and by others that one of the prophets of old had risen. Herod said, John I beheaded, but who is this about whom I hear such things? And he sought to see him. On their return, the apostles told him all that they had done, and he took them and withdrew apart to a town called Bethsaida. When the crowds learned it, they followed him, and he welcomed them and spoke to them of the kingdom of God and cured those who had need of healing. Now the day began to wear away, and the twelve came and said to him, Send the crowd away to go into the surrounding villages and countryside to find lodging and get provisions, for we are here in a desolate place. But he said to them, You give them something to eat. They said, We have no more than five loaves and two fish unless we are to go and buy food for all the people, these people. For there were about 5,000 men. And he said to his disciples, have them sit down in groups of about 50 each. And they did so, and had them all sit down. And taking the five loaves and the two fish, he looked up to heaven and said a blessing over them. Then he broke the loaves and gave them to the disciples to set before the crowd. And they all ate and were satisfied. And what was left over was picked up 12 baskets of broken pieces. Now it happened that as he was praying alone, the disciples were with him, and he said to them, Who do the crowds say that I am? And they answered, John the Baptist. But others say, Elijah, and others, that one of the prophets of old has risen. Then he said to them, But who do you say that I am? And Peter answered, The Christ of God. And he strictly charged and commanded them to tell this to no one, saying, The Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders and chief priests and scribes and be killed and on the third day be raised. And he said to all, If anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross daily and follow me. 
For whoever would save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for my sake will save it. For what does it profit a man if he gains the whole world and loses or forfeits himself? For whoever is ashamed of me and of my words, of him will the Son of Man be ashamed when he comes in his glory and the glory of the Father and of the holy angels. But I tell you truly, there are some standing here who will not taste death until they see the kingdom of God. Now about eight days after these sayings, he took with him Peter and John and James and went up on the mountain to pray. And as he was praying, the appearance of his face was altered, and his clothing became dazzling white. And behold, two men were talking with him, Moses and Elijah, who appeared in glory and spoke of his departure, which he was about to accomplish at Jerusalem. Now Peter and those who were with him were heavy with sleep. But when they became fully awake, they saw his glory and the two men who stood with him. And as the men were parting from him, Peter said to Jesus, Master, it is good that we are here. Let us make three tents, one for you and one for Moses and one for Elijah, not knowing what he said. As he was saying these things, a cloud came, over, came and overshadowed them, and they were afraid as they entered the cloud. And a voice came out of the cloud saying, This is my son. My chosen one, listen to him. And when the voice had spoken, Jesus was found alone. And they kept silent and told no one in those days anything of what they had seen. On the next day, when they had come down from the mountain, a great crowd met him. And behold, a man from the crowd cried out, Teacher, I beg you to look at my son, for he is my only child. And behold, a spirit seizes him, and he suddenly cries out. It convulses him so that he foams at the mouth and shatters him and will hardly leave him. And I begged your disciples to cast it out, but they could not. And Jesus answered, O faithless and twisted generation, how long am I to be with you and bear with you? Bring your son here. And while he was coming, the demon threw him to the ground and convulsed him, but Jesus rebuked the unclean spirit and healed the boy and gave him back to his father. And all were astonished at the majesty of God. Let's pray. Father, we pray that you would help now the hearing of your word. Bless the preaching, bless the hearing. Grant, O oh Lord, that we would see Jesus and love what we see. Help us to know him better. And to follow him closely, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. So if you're taking notes this morning and want to follow along with your, with your own notes, let me, let me sort of outline the sermon into, in two questions. The first question is that question running throughout the chapter. Who is Jesus? The second question has to do with those responses. And I put it this way. What is it like to follow Jesus? Who is Jesus, and what is it like to follow Jesus? Let's take that first question, who is Jesus? You see, it gets raised for the first time in verses 7 to 9 by a man named Herod. This is Herod Antipas, the son of Herod the Great. His father had been a great king in that region, and when his father died, Herod, his son, 
took about a third of his kingdom, including the area where Jesus grew up and the area where Jesus ministered. And Herod was king over that area for all of our Lord's earthly life. It ruled from 4 B.C. until about 39 A.D. And Herod is hearing the news about what is happening, verse 7. And no doubt as a ruler, whenever you hear that that's somebody who stepped on the scene, who's healing people and curing people and large crowds are following him, as a ruler, you might have some concern. Who is this dude? Who's this upstart gaining all of this attention in my kingdom? And so he, he wants to know. But now notice now, first of all, the crowd gets it twisted. The crowd, in answer to the question, who is Jesus, gets it twisted. You, you see it there in verse 7. Herod is perplexed. And, and why is he perplexed? Look, in, look in at 7 and 8. Some said that John had been raised from the dead. Some that Elijah had appeared. And by others, that one of the prophets of old had risen. You see, everybody's got a theory about who Jesus is. That it's John the Baptist, that it's some prophet of old, that it's Elijah has come back. You remember that in the last sermon in Malachi, which our brother Jahil preached for us, it had that prophecy there of Elijah coming again before the coming of the Messiah. They're, they're thinking very much about that text. And, and those three things about their, their responses, things that they, they have in common. Number one, all of their responses are religious. All of the people that they put forth as candidates show that these are, are religious people or they're wrestling with this question, who is Jesus, from a religious perspective. Number two, all of their answers are supernatural. All the people they list here involve either a resurrection or a coming again from heaven or some supernatural event. Notice number three, all of their answers are wrong. The crowds, beloved, rarely get it right. The crowds rarely have an accurate understanding of the truth about Jesus Christ and the truth about his kingdom. And so, no wonder, the crowds get it twisted. So, number, no wonder, number two, Herod stops with his confusion. He's perplexed. He's hearing different things. He tells us in verse 9 that he knows it's not John because he beheaded John. This is a wicked man. John the Baptist, that forerunner of Jesus Christ, had come preaching that Jesus was coming, and John was fearless. John would preach the truth even to kings, and this man Herod had taken his brother's wife. And John, preaching to Herod, said, man, you're wrong, and confronted them both. And his wife, Herod's wife, was so bitter that later on she asked, she asked her husband to give her John the Baptist's head on a platter, and Herod did. That's what he means when he says, John, I beheaded. I know it's not John, but he's still confused as to who it is. But now, notice this. Notice at the end of verse 9. The text says, and he sought to hear him. What do you think about that sentence? Herod is king. Herod commands men. Herod's living in a time where a king could pretty much do anything he wanted to do. That sentence feels kind of weak to me. He sought to see him. How is it that a king with that kind of authority couldn't actually get an audience with someone he wanted to get an audience with? I think Herod stopped with his confusion. He remained satisfied with being perplexed. He didn't press forward to actually get an answer. 
Listen, beloved, we don't get points, any points. We don't get any praise or any rewards for asking about Jesus while never going to actually see Jesus, while never actually going to get the truth about Jesus. It is a tragic mistake to leave with the question, who is Jesus, unanswered. That's the question that all of us must answer. And all of us should not rest until we answer that biblically, factually, clearly. The crowds get it twisted. Herod stops with his confusion. But now notice the Lord makes it personal. The second time this question comes up is in verse 18. Look there with me. Now it happened that as he was praying alone, the disciples were with him, and he asked them, who do the crowds say that I am? So Jesus is taking a little poll here. He's wanting to know what people are saying about him, but he's, he's setting something up. Now, go on in verse 19. And they answered just what we saw earlier, John the Baptist. But others say Elijah, and others that are one of the prophets of old has risen. Then verse 20, he said to them, but who do you say that I am? The you there is emphatic. He's stressing now a, a personal response. He's pressing this question not out into the air about the crowds. He's pressing this question down home to the heart about his individual disciples. Who do you say that I am? Who do you, Nathan, say Jesus is? Who do you, Mike, say Jesus is? Who do you, Chelsea, say Jesus is? Colin, Erica, who do you say Jesus is? This is a question that comes to each of us personally. We can't avoid it. We can't duck it. We can't put it off. We can't ultimately ignore it because Christ himself, the Lord of Lords, is asking it. Who do you say that I am? Heaven has a one-question pop quiz for all of humanity. Who do you say that Christ is? There are people in the world who we will never know and that won't cost us a thing. There are people in the world that our friends and family know quite well, but we've never met. And that won't change eternity. But Jesus, we must all know. Jesus, we must all have an answer for this question. Who do you say that I am? Young or old? Rich or poor, male or female, of every ethnic background, must answer this question. Verse 20. First in verse 19, see that earlier when Jesus asked the question, who the crowd said that I am in verse 19? Notice that all the disciples are replying in. All of them are speaking up and say, oh, they think this, and, and they think that, and other people, they believe this. When Jesus gets personal, only one man speaks up, and that's Peter. And Peter confesses that you are the Christ or the chosen one or the anointed one of God. And Peter knows Jesus better than the crowds, it seems, but two things need to be added here. Peter didn't come up with this himself. So when Matthew, the other gospel, one of the other gospels report, records this scene and Peter makes this confession in Matthew chapter 16, verse 17, Jesus says, flesh and blood did not reveal this to you, but my Father in heaven. 
You see, beginning to understand who Jesus is is really a matter of God graciously and supernaturally giving us an enlightened mind and working in us a new heart, revealing his son to us. The flesh and blood doesn't teach us this. God by his spirit does. But, but there's a second thing. Though Peter knew that Jesus was the Christ, Peter didn't yet know everything that confession involved. He's beginning to see partially. He hadn't yet seen completely. Beloved, there's a good admonition in that for us. We cannot think that we know everything about Jesus once we know one thing about Jesus. He's infinite. He's deep. He's rich. Even when you know him well, you're only beginning to know him. And when we have been in glory with him, in heaven with him for 10,000 years, the psalmist says, we will only have just begun to sing his praises. We will only just begin to, to see something of his majesty and something of his wonder, something of his infinite glory. Now, we know one thing about Jesus. That's not the same thing as knowing everything about Jesus. And even that one thing we know about Jesus, that he is the Christ, is something that has depths and layers and, 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 and richness to it. And so notice what Jesus says when Peter responds, verses 21 and 22. Our Lord goes on to say, And he strictly charged and commanded them to tell this to no one, saying, The Son of Man, it's another title for himself, The Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders and chief priests and scribes and be killed and on the third day be raised. This, I think, beloved, is Jesus' working definition of what it means for him to be the Christ, what it means for him to be chosen. Chosen for what? Anointed for what? He was anointed to come into the world, to take our place before God, to give to God a perfect obedience that we fail to give God, and to then be crucified, to be killed on the cross as a punishment, not for his sin, but for our sin. And having been punished on the cross and dying on the cross, he's buried for three days. And you see here, he tells us before it happens, he will be raised on the third day. All of that is for the salvation of men, for the rescuing of men and women, boys and girls, from the coming judgment of God against sin. That's what it means for him to be the Christ. That's what it means for him to be the anointed one. He's the chosen one to die in our place and to rise again so that we, might never die, but live with God, forgiven of our sins, counted or judged as righteous, adopted into God's family, to live with him forever. This is the good news of Christianity. This is what we call the gospel message. And this is what everyone must know in answer to the question, who is Christ? And they must know this and believe this personally. It's not a matter of saying the crowds believe, there are a whole bunch of Christians who believe this is true about Jesus. That won't get you into glory. And it's not a matter of saying my grandmother believed this. She used to have a little talk with Jesus and and sing those old hymns and she knew Jesus. That won't get you and me into glory. Grandmother's faith. And it's not enough to say my mother believed in Jesus and when she was every day in the church worshiping Christ, you can't phone this in. You can't borrow this. This must be your answer. 
Christ died for me. Christ was crucified for me. Christ rose from the grave for me, a sinner who needed a Savior. And he's the only one. Who do you say Christ is? Or to put it another way, is he your personal Savior and Lord? If he's not, he can be. Trust him. Confess your sin to God. Believe the truth about Jesus, that he was chosen to die for you and was raised from the grave for your salvation. And even though you don't know all of what that means, just like Peter didn't know all of what it meant to call Christ, uh, to call Jesus to Christ, begin there. Believe, start with what you do know. Start with what you do believe, and Christ will teach you more. Turn to him. Trust him. Believe in him. The crowds get it twisted. Herod remained confused. Jesus asked, who do you say that I am? And the Father settles it. Did you see that? Look with me a little bit later, verses 34, or excuse me, verses 28 to 26. Jesus again goes to pray with three of his disciples, Peter, John, and James. As Jesus prays, something extraordinary happens. Look at verses 29 to 31. And as he was praying, the appearance of his face was altered, and his clothing became dazzling white. And behold, two men were talking with him, Moses and Elijah, who appeared in glory and spoke of his departure, which he was about to accomplish at Jerusalem. I think we're meant to see in this scene a parallel between Moses in Exodus 34 and Jesus on the Mount of Transfiguration. Both went up on the Mount, both talked with God, both had their faces changed. But there's some significant differences, too. Moses' face shone with God's glory, but Jesus' entire appearance radiates glory, changed in a flash. Elijah and Moses appear with Jesus here on the Mount of Transfiguration. When Moses went up on the Mount, he went up alone. Moses received the law, but here now Jesus discusses the gospel. You see what it says? They were speaking to him about his departure, which he was about to accomplish. They're speaking of his trip to Jerusalem, where he will be crucified, buried, and resurrected. Peter, James, and John, verse 32, they see Jesus' glory. And they want to worship. Israel, apart from a mediator, when they saw the glory of God on the face of Moses, wanted to hide and, and called out, depart from us. Here's the biggest difference. God speaks to the disciples the definitive answer to the question, who is Jesus? Verses 34 to 36. Look there with me. As he was saying these things, Peter talking about building a, a place to worship each of the three of them. As he was saying these things, a cloud came and overshadowed them, and they were afraid as they entered the cloud, entered into that glory. And a voice came 
cloud, that's the voice of God the Father, saying, this is my son, my chosen one. Listen to him. And when the voice had spoken, Jesus was found alone. And they kept silent and told no one in those days anything of what they had seen. When the Father speaks from that glory, we learn two further things about Christ. Number one, Jesus is God's Son. He is the Son of God from all of eternity past. He shares deity with the Father. He is God. And number two, Jesus is God's spokesperson. You want to know what's on the mind of God? Listen to the teaching of Jesus. You don't want to know what the Father thinks about something? Read what Jesus says in the Gospels. And here the Father commands us, don't listen to the crowd, don't listen to kings, listen to my Son. The writer of Hebrews says it this way in Hebrews 1, in the last days God has spoken to us by his Son. In other words, Christ is the last word from heaven. It's the last message from God. The one that we are to listen to and obey. So here's the corresponding question. When you think about what you know about Christ and how you answer the question, who is Christ? It's been implicit in what we've been saying, but let me make it explicit. Who are you listening to? Who are you listening to? Is it some other source than the Lord Jesus? Or is it Christ in his word? The only sure way to know Christ is to listen to him in his word. And maybe you've had this experience of talking with some friends and, and one of your friends brings up Johnny, let's call him. He says, man, you know Johnny? And you say, yeah, I think so. That friend says something like, man, Johnny's crazy, man. And you kind of lean back a little bit. And you say, well, what do you mean? He says, oh, man. He said, Johnny, Johnny cracks me up, man. He makes me laugh every time, every time I'm with him, man. He's crazy. And you say something like, well, that's, that's not very nice. I wouldn't say that. The friend looks at you like, what, what do you mean? So well, that's not a good way to talk about people with mental health issues. And you're like, what? <laughs> no, no, Johnny's got no mental health issues. He's, just, he, he's a comic. He's funny. And you discover in that instance, in this silly little example, that you've been using the same name, talking about really different people. That happens all the time with the faith. You, you can go outside these doors and walk one, two blocks and see people and begin to talk with them about Jesus. And you can both be saying Jesus and nodding your head and be talking about really different people. Right? So you go out here and you meet one of our brothers from the nation of Islam and he's talking about Jesus. For him, Jesus is just a prophet. That's all he is. You, you go out on the street and you bump into a brother, a Nubian uh, Hebrew Israelite, and he'd just be all over the place. You don't know... You don't know what he's talking about, right? But, but he's saying Jesus' name, right? And on and on it goes. The sure way to know Jesus is to see what Jesus says about himself in his word. That's who we're to listen to. That's when we can have confidence that when we know Christ, because we come to listen to this Jesus who offers himself in the gospel. Who is Jesus? must all answer that. And that brings us to a second question. What is it like to follow Jesus? 
What's it like to not only get to know him, but to begin to, begin to live for him, to, to listen to him, not just to hear something, but to actually obey it? What, what's that like? And that's the second sort of braid that's running through this chapter. And as we consider the responses of the persons in this chapter, we, we're going to discover something. That if we get to know Jesus, he's going to be the greatest provider we've ever met. We see that in four ways in this text. He provides four things. Let me give them to you quickly. Number one, he provides to us power and purpose. The Lord Jesus gives us power and purpose when we follow him. That's what we see in Luke 9, verses 1 to 6. Notice there, verses 1 and 2, first of all, and he called the 12 together and gave them power and authority over all demons and to cure diseases, and he sent them out to proclaim the kingdom of God and to heal. So verse 1 tells us of the power and authority. Verse 2 gives us the purpose. And everyone who follows Jesus receives, as it were, this same power and this same purpose. Now what does Jesus say in Acts chapter 1, verse 8, when the, when the apostles are waiting for him after the, the resurrection to return? He says, you know, you're going to receive power from on high. Why? To be witnesses for me all the way to the ends of the earth. And that same commission and purpose falls upon every life, every person who follows Jesus. And you know what this means, beloved? If we follow Jesus, he gives meaning to us, not just for this life, but for all of eternity. And if he gives us, if we follow Jesus, he gives us not only a purpose, but he gives us power to fulfill the purpose. Don't raise your hands, but... How many of you are experiencing now or have experienced at some point a kind of purposelessness? You don't know what your purpose is. You don't know what you're supposed to do with your life. And maybe you feel like every day just bleeds together into every other day and try as you might, you either can't discover an interest that's big enough to define your life or maybe you have identified some things you really would love to do and to pursue, but you have no way of getting there. That's a rather common experience. And for some people, that sense of purposelessness, lack of meaning, just kind of becomes suffocating. This smoke that chokes the lungs. Jesus comes and he blows the smoke away. And he clears the vision. He says, I'm going to give you purpose and power that will be meaningful not only for your individual life, but it will be meaningful for my entire purpose for the world. I'm, I'm going to send you to tell others of me, and in you telling others of me, I'm going to change the world, and I'm going to impact eternity, and I'm going to be doing it through you by the power of my spirit and the power of my word. And those who follow Jesus discover this purpose and this power that when we embrace it, it just redefines all of life. We don't live anymore just for our work. We don't live anymore just to have a, a family and a white house and a picket fence and two and a half kids. We don't live anymore just to get out of the neighborhood. We, we don't live anymore merely to buy a, a new car or to have some nice clothes, right? 
Those things begin to sort of fade as a purpose and and to sort of diminish into the background. And and more and more in our vision is the Lord Jesus Christ and his cross and his resurrection and the souls of men who may be saved by the proclamation of that message. And more and more, the whole world becomes our stage. The whole world becomes our oyster. The whole world becomes our playground because this is our Father's world. And he has sent us into it. And the gospel is so powerful that it not only saves a soul, but it gives purpose and power to a soul. And that's what it's like to follow Jesus, to have his mission become our mission and to do his work his way. Even when there's opposition, even when there's setback, even when there's persecution. So look in verse 5 of of chapter 9. He says, basically, you're going to go to some towns and they're not going to receive you. And what does he say? He says, shake the dust off your feet, right? It's a metaphor from that day, a lot like the one we use when we say, wash our hands of it. Right? Be done with it. This one said, I'm going to send you, and not everybody's going to receive you, but guess what? You keep pressing. You keep going, because I'm going to be with you always, giving you this purpose and this power, and bringing to myself glory through you. He gives us not only purpose and power, but notice also, he gives us supplies and satisfaction. Supplies and satisfaction. That's what we see in that passage, verses 10 to 17. Jesus appears there as a prophet greater than Moses. Isn't it interesting, each time that someone says that Jesus might be Moses, if you read back to this chapter, you'll see we then get a scene where Jesus seems to be compared to Moses. And God just keeps kind of proving over and over again that his son is greater than Moses. Notice, Jesus and the disciples go to Bethsaida. That's a wilderness place. Crowds come out to Jesus where he welcomes them, heals them, and teaches them God's word. Apparently, they stay out in the desert place all day because it's growing late and the people haven't had dinner in verse 12. All this reminds us of what, doesn't it? Moses in the wilderness with Israel. When God had Israel wandering for 40 years and would feed them with manna and quail from heaven, God supplied their needs. But Israel grumbled. They weren't satisfied. And then we get this miracle. This is 12 to 17. Jesus says to his disciples to feed the people. The disciples says, man, what what are we supposed to do? Go back to town and get supplies? We don't have enough for all these people. There are 5,000 men, the other gospel writers tell us, not counting women and children. And Jesus says, I tell you what, have them sit down in groups of of 50 or, or 100. Have them sit down in groups. Bring me what you have. And he blesses two fish, and, or he blesses the loaves and he blesses the fish. And then he tells them to, to go and distribute the food to the people. Now you got to get this in your head. He's just got a couple of fish and a couple of loaves and 5,000 hungry men. And he, break, he blesses it, he breaks it, he gives the 12 disciples baskets and they go to these groups of men sitting down in groups of 50 and they just keep giving them food. Now, I don't know how that works. You know, the basket was empty, and you put your hand in there, and something else come out, or if, if it fell like quail or manna from heaven. <laughs> but the Lord does this miracle to supply for his people, and it's a picture of how he supplies 
for us. And not only that, but you notice in verse 17, when they're done feeding the people, they come back. How many baskets do they have? They have 12 baskets, one for each of the disciples. It's like he sent them home with a goodie bag as a reminder for them personally, I got you. I got you. You're not going to want. You're not going to hunger. I'm going to supply. And you notice the text there? And they were satisfied. I'm going to satisfy you with myself. That's what it's like to follow Jesus. And many times people think, if I follow Jesus, I'm going to have to give up everything that I enjoy. I'm going to have to give up everything that I love. If I follow Jesus, he might tell me to go to the deepest part of India or Africa and, and become a missionary. And I got to leave my family and leave my home. Or if I follow Jesus, I got to break up in this relationship that I'm in. And, and uh, it might cost me. Yes, it's going to cost you everything. And it's worth it. And it's worth it. It may cost you your home in the United States to go to Africa on this purpose with this power to make Jesus known. It may cost you a relationship that you should not be in, and you know it already, in order that you would progress in the joy of the Lord. It, it may cost you your ambition and your desires because he will change your heart and change your goals, and he will slowly change your mind, and you will discover you didn't want that stuff no more anyway. You looked up and your eyes were new and your, your hands were new and your, your heart was new and, and you had new desires and, and Jesus satisfies those desires and he supplies your needs. That's what he's like. He doesn't call you to follow him so he can be stingy with you. He's not like one of our boys. I, I, got, I had boys like that when I was growing up. Man, like, yo, man, let's go to the party. Go to the party and be like, yo, man, I ain't got no money. You pay to get him in the party. Next week, you ain't got no money. He's like, no, nah, man, you always asking for money and stuff. You know, it gets stingy with you. It's not how the Lord is. He's generous. He's gracious. The Bible says that if God did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us, how will he not, along with Jesus, give us all things? You follow Jesus, and it will cost you, but you'll discover he supplies for you. And he satisfies you. Notice the third thing. Not only does he satisfy and supply, not only does he give us purpose and a power, but notice now, third thing, there's going to be a cross, then a crown. To follow Jesus is to have first a cross, then a crown. That's what we see in verses 23 to 27. Look there with me. And he said to all, if anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross daily and follow me. For whoever would save his life will lose it. But whoever loses his life for my sake will save it. For what does it profit a man if he gains the whole world and loses or forfeits himself? For whoever is ashamed of me and of my words, of him will the Son of Man be ashamed when he comes in his glory and the glory of the Father and of the holy angels." But I tell you truly, there are some standing here who will not taste death until they see the kingdom of God. You see how Jesus begins in verses 23, 24? That if we're going to follow him, we must pick up our cross. That, that's where he was going. He was going to Jerusalem to be crucified on a cross to give his life as a ransom for us, to, to lay down his life for us. And there's no way to, for us to follow him without doing some cross-carrying. Notice the word must there. It's required. 
they must pick up their cross. And you notice the word daily there? It's not something you do once and we can put aside. It's a continual dying to ourselves, denying ourselves so that we may follow him. And, and implicit in that, beloved, is this. And it's a hard thing for us sometimes, but it's a, it's a gracious truth. Doing what we want to do is not the same thing as doing what Christ wants us to do. That's why we have to deny ourselves. Our natural instincts, our natural desires, our sinful nature does not desire the things of God. And, and over and over again, we have been taught in life that, yo, we're, we're to live for ourselves. We're to do the things that bring us pleasure. We're to be our own people. And Jesus comes and says, actually, I'm going to put a cross over that. We're going to cross that out. You must deny yourself and follow me. And you must do it if you would have life. And you must do it daily if you would be my disciple. And you notice the next verse begins with for. It's like saying because. It gives us the reason then. It does it in the form of a rhetorical question. It says, what profit would it be to a man to gain the whole world and to lose or forfeit his soul? And that's the question he's just pressing in on us with, isn't it? If you could get everything you ever wanted. We used to play that game when I was a kid. We'd be riding our bikes, man. We'd get a little slow spot where we're just kind of cruising a little bit. And, you know, the, the really cool kids had Schwins. I had a Schwinn. You know, other kids had Huffies, you know. And we'd ride and we'd play a little game, man. What, what would you do if you had everything in the world? That'd be the question. We'd be daydreaming about everything in the world. Man, if I had all the money in the world, I'd buy my mom a house in Hawaii, and I had some bad clothes, man, and I get that. See, this is back in the day when uh, the Thunderbird was the hot car. i give me a Thunderbird, man. See, some people know, right? i give me a Thunderbird with like an eagle on the top, you know. We just ride. We just ride and imagine, and we get in the whole world. And you know what? For most of our lives, we don't get that thinking checked. In fact, we're told that that's the way we're supposed to think. That's why you do good in school, so you can get stuff. That's why you go to college, so you can get stuff. That's why you avoid making mistakes, so you can get stuff. And all along the way, we're just being told to get more and more and more and more. And this is why many people have apartments and houses and storage buildings. Stuff is killing us. There's just more and more stuff, and you stuff the storage building, you stuff the storage rooms in your house, you stuff the drawers, your T-shirt drawer. You got T-shirts in there you ain't been able to wear since high school, but you still got stuff, right? And you're stuffing it in there, and, and we're just walking around like people who are just trying to get our hands around the whole world. I just need more. I need more. And this is what we discover. We got, we got the world in our arms and our hands, and Jesus comes along, and we have no ability to grasp Jesus. And Christ says, forfeit the world and embrace him. But you can't do both. And if you keep grasping after the world, you will lose your soul. And implicit in the question is this recognition that the whole world is not worth one individual soul. Your soul and my soul is more precious, is more valuable than all the world's treasures combined, multiplied and stacked and stuffed into whatever storage you can stuff it in. There's nothing in this universe multiplied together that is worth your and my soul. It's why Jesus dies for us. It's why he sheds his blood for us, where there's nothing else valuable enough to purchase us back. 
And so the Lord says, pick up your cross and follow me because if you grasp the world, if I grasp for the world, we will forfeit our soul. In one of the Gospels, he, says, he adds a question. He says, or what will you give in exchange for your soul? <laughs> There's nothing you could give of equal value or more for your soul. So, beloved, treat your soul with the value it's worth. So, treat your soul with the Savior of the earth. Jesus Christ, the righteous. Pick up your cross, follow him. First comes a cross, but then there comes a crown. You notice what he goes on to say in those verses? He begins to talk about this glory. The Son of Man will come in his glory, but if you are ashamed of him, if I'm ashamed of him, he'll be ashamed of us when he comes, and he'll reject us when he comes. But implicit in this is when he comes in his glory and we have been waiting for that blessed hope, the glorious appearing of our God and Savior Jesus Christ, then we will share with him in that glory. We'll be crowned with glory and seeing him, 1 John 3 says, we will be like him. And all the glory that is in Christ, all the glory that he's transfigured with there on the mount, we will taste and see and become if we look to him. And we wait for him, and we carry our cross, and we seek the reward. Listen, beloved, the Christian life has hard things in it, not the least of which is telling yourself no where Christ says no. Learning that self-control and self-denial, that's tough sometimes. The Christian life has a lot of crosses in it. Jesus doesn't hide that. Jesus puts that in bold print, not fine print. If you're going to follow me, you've got to carry this cross. But beloved, there is glory on the other side of the cross. There's a crown that's coming when the king returns. And so all of our suffering in this life, the Bible tells us, is light and momentary compared to that exceeding weight of glory we will see and share when Christ comes. And the trick to the Christian life is to live in this time with our eyes on that time to come. To endure and to, and to persevere through these crosses with a great expectation of that crown. So Jesus says, raise your gaze. Look to what's coming. Glory's coming to all those who follow me. What's it like to follow Jesus? Here's a fourth and final thing. It is to participate in triumph and truth. Triumph and truth. He gives us purpose and power, supply and satisfaction, a cross and then a crown, and triumph and truth. We see this uh, in verses 37 to to 40 there. Notice there in verses 37 to 40, the disciples on the next day, they come down from the mountain, from this mountaintop experience. A crowd meets them. And behold, a man from the crowd cried out, teacher, I beg you, look at my son, for he's my only child. And behold, a spirit seizes him and suddenly cries out. It convulses him so that he foams at the mouth and shatters him and, and will hardly leave him. And I begged your disciples to cast it out, but they could not. 
It's striking. This is a good reminder that we don't live on the mountaintop. We live down here in the valley where there's trouble. And we can't do everything that we would want to do. They can't cast out this demon. They tried, but they couldn't. But notice now, Jesus rebukes him in verse 41. He calls him a faithless and twisted generation. How long am I to be with you and bear with you? Bring your son here. In verses 42 and following, Jesus heals the man's son. While he was coming, the demon threw him to the ground and convulsed him, but Jesus rebuked the unclean spirit and healed the boy and gave him back to his father. And all were astonished at the majesty of God. You see how Christ triumphs there over the demonic powers? He triumphs over this boy's illness. He triumphs over this father's worry. Our victory is not found in us, it's found in Christ. Notice the difference between the disciples and the crowds in Luke 9, 43 to 45. And they, the crowd, were all amazed at the greatness of God. Now watch this. While everyone was marveling at all that Jesus did, Jesus said to the disciples, listen carefully, basically. Let this sink into your ears, would be the literal translation. And he says this. The Son of Man is going to be betrayed into the hands of men. The really priceless thing in this text isn't the miraculous triumph. It's the meaning of this truth. It's not the thing that the crowd was amazed at. They were amazed at Jesus casting out the demon. They were amazed at this exorcism. And it is an amazing thing. But Jesus turns to his disciples and says, let me hip you to the truth. I'm about to go be crucified. He, he hips him to the gospel. Why he has come in order to rescue the world in his, in his sacrifice. And beloved, here's the amazing thing. When you walk with Jesus, you will see triumphs. But, but what will be more and more precious to you is the truths that you keep getting. Is the treasure from his word. Is the richness of his teaching. And the greater insight into his gospel. What he has done for us. I'm going to use these words and they're going to be feeble. Christ died for us. When you first hear that, that's feeble. But when you believe it and you begin to embrace it and to experience it, it goes from feeble to wonderful. It becomes the most dear truth. Christ died for us. Christ died for me. Christ shed his own blood to wash me clean of my sins. Christ went to the cross to turn the Father's anger away from me. He, he did this to reconcile me to God. Christ died for me. And, and the more you sort of dip your beak into that, the wetter your soul gets. And the more you, you sort of immerse yourself in that, the sweeter Christ gets. And the triumph gets bigger. And the truth gets sweeter. This is not that shallow Christian triumphalism. You know, that looks at every problem and says, in the end we win. That's true. <laughs> it's true, but in so many cases it's shallow. You see that shallow Christian triumphalism in elections. Well, we know who's the king. Well, that's true. But we, we, we work our way through this crazy election first, right? It's not shallow triumphalism. 
This is a genuine victory in Christ, rooted in the truth, wherein the truth gets sweeter and the victory gets more glorious. That's what it's like to follow Jesus. You do see the victories, but you see the truth beneath them too. And it refreshes the soul. He gives us purpose and power. He gives us supplies and satisfaction. He gives us, yes, a cross, but then a crown. He gives us triumph and truth. Why would we not follow Jesus? Why would we not deny ourselves, pick up our cross, and follow him daily? Why would we ever not confess him as Lord and God, our personal Savior, the chosen one, to redeem us from sin and to bring us to glory. There's no good reason not to follow Jesus. If you want to know more about how to do that, talk to your Christian friend who brought you, see one of the pastors after the service. But this is the day of salvation. This is the day of salvation. Do not harden your hearts, but believe in Jesus Christ. Let's pray together. Oh, Father, we praise you for the chosen one, the Messiah, the Christ, Jesus, your Son, and our Lord. We praise you, O oh Lord, that he has given himself for our salvation. As sinners though we are, we can be righteous and clean and good and holy in your sight through faith in Jesus. And we praise you that in Jesus, you give us every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places. You give us everything that pertains to life and godliness. You give us purpose and power. You give us the supplies we need for life, and you satisfy us with those things. Yes, you give us a cross but we would have it no other way since our Savior went to the cross and you promise us a crown if we persevere. You promise us triumph and you feed us with truth. You give us everything we need. So help us to follow you gladly, joyfully, full of faith, eagerly anticipating the coming of your glory when we shall see you and be like you. Well, give someone this morning saving faith, new faith, in Jesus. And strengthen us this morning, if we have already come to trust in him, that we might run the race and not faint. Bless us, O oh Lord, we pray. In Jesus' name. Amen.